what do authors, educators, and the co-host of a hit PBS paleontology program all have in common? They all recognize the power of a well-structured narrative. Hello, and thank you for joining us today here on Edutech XP. My name is Eric, and today we will discuss educational media, science journalism, and the ways that narratives in an educational setting help bring facts and information to life. So let's start with the very basics. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a narrative as a way of presenting or understanding a situation or series of events that reflects and promotes a particular point of view or set of values. There are a few different definitions for the word narrative, but this is perhaps the one most fitting to the educational field, as the core mission of education is to bring about a change of mindset or behavior through a structured presentation of information. To paraphrase the famous Victorian-era British author E.M. Forrester, to simply say, the king died, then the queen died, is merely a sequence of events. But if one says, the king died, and then the queen died of grief, this is a plot. Through developing the story, we can connect different facts, like the deaths of the king and the queen, with a causal link. So much more can be visualized and taken away from the text with the simple addition of just two words. And the benefits of narratives in a learning context are not just speculation. This is actually supported by empirical evidence. A study published in the Journal of Applied Sciences explored the difference between standard instruction and narrative use when teaching English for specific purposes, in this particular study, medical terminology. One group was taught with a basic presentation of the information, while the other group was taught using a storytelling, narrative-driven lesson. Not only did the participants learning with a story format exhibit statistically significant higher knowledge retention and growth, but they scored drastically higher on motivation and participation as well. Motivation, of course, is a key component of building learner success. Generally seen as an interaction between the perceived value of instruction and the perceived difficulty in achieving the goal of that instruction, it factors heavily into overall learner engagement. A disengaged learner audience will come away from instruction with much less than those who are engaged if they retain anything at all. So if an instructional designer wants to foster learning effectively, motivation and engagement increases through tactics like strategic narrative use are incredibly advantageous. This is especially true for the creation of self-directed or recreational learning. Someone that has to learn a new skill for a job or to pass a test will usually have some pre-existing motivation. However, recreational learning or self-directed learning, like watching documentaries or using learning apps, has to compete with other recreational activities like video games, sports, hanging out with friends, and it has to compete for the learner's free time. So this brings us to our very special guest for today's episode, Blake DePastino, who I am personally so thrilled to have had the chance to nerd out with. Blake is the co-host of the hit PBS paleontology program, Eons, as well as the head of content for Eons' parent production company, Complexly. In addition to Eons, Complexly creates other educational content spanning a wide variety of topics. Their most well-known program, Crash Course, along with all of their other programs, have a combined total subscriber count of over 20 million subscribed viewers. I've personally been a big fan of Eons for a few years, and I was absolutely thrilled when Blake agreed to volunteer some of his time to discuss the power of the narrative within an educational context. So let's see what he had to say on the topic. Blake, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's really a pleasure. 
All right. So as we've mentioned, you are the co-host of Eons and uh, the head of content at Complexly. And I would start off by asking you who influenced you the most growing up in relation to your current career path? That's a very good question because I come from a journalism background in science journalism. So I was involved in what we used to call the alternative press in the 90s, like the alternative weeklies, you know. They had the free ads in the back and most of the rest of it was music listings. <laughs> then uh, I worked on some of the, the word stuff in the middle. And then from there, I went to science journalism because I was always interested in science, but I wasn't a particularly apt science student. And so I, uh, my work in science journalism kind of crystallized my thinking around what I find to be effective communication of difficult concepts, beginning with like ancient history in the late Holocene and in the 1990s. But really what, it, what I'm, I'm doing that because I worked for a long time before I figured out who I was drawing from. And a lot of what I was drawing from was like 12-year-old me watching Cosmos for the first time, the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan on PBS. And it remains an example to me, and I talked to other creators about it too, for a number of reasons. One is just that Sagan was a skilled and beautiful storyteller, and he used stories to talk about incredibly concept, often abstract concepts. Like, how do you know that you're living in a three-dimensional universe, <laughs> you know? Or what will aliens think of us if and when they find us? So there's that part of it. I think I was influenced a lot by the power of storytelling to get people to learn and also not even learn things, but just to think about things that they ordinarily wouldn't think about. And the other thing that struck me was like, I was 12 years old and I wasn't, I was weird in a lot of ways just for like social and psychological reasons, but I, I wasn't a science geek or anything. I didn't think of myself as like a consumer of science news. I wasn't particularly interested in astronomy, but I watched that entire series three or four times. Wow. I think I even bought it on VHS at one point when I was old enough to afford it. I wasn't the target audience for it, but, and yet I was. And so he, able, he was able to reach me as someone who didn't think of himself as a science or an astronomy buff and really kindled a fascination that I still have with astronomy and cosmology. Uh, and he did that just because he's able to reach me through storytelling. That's interesting because I would definitely say that in the case of like Bill Nye, that was something that was like very interesting for me growing up. And I think Nye definitely kind of continued from what Sagan started with his sort of being able to make, as you're saying, making science accessible and, and making it something that like the everyday citizen can be interested in. Yeah, indeed. Like not only accessible, but really interesting. Like how do you reach people who don't even know that they're interested in these things? And that's something we talked about in the very early days of eons. PBS Digital Studios came to Complexly My Production Company and said, how about like a show about dinosaurs? And I was like, sure, like this is what that would look like. And I just wrote up a pitch for it. But I said, this is not really, you can't really talk about a show about one kind of organism in any meaningful way. Because it's part of a broader... Yeah. yeah, you have to have you have to establish a context of it in terms of like, what are its evolutionary relationships to other things? What do they where do they come from? Who are their living descendants? And then why do they change over time, which involves talking about climate and geology? And so I'm like, look, let's just I'll see you that and raise you a, a show about the history of life on Earth. You know, and small, small, small subject matter, right? Not a yeah. lot to cover there. But part of what we wanted to accomplish by doing that was to go back to what we were talking about before. Like it wasn't a show that was pitched to dinosaur nerds or, or fossil geeks. Uh, we wanted to tell the story of the history of life in order to make it to pitch it to people who didn't even think of themselves as being interested in paleontology. So the show is about life. It's not about fossils. You see what That's, I mean? Yeah, definitely. And so we, we carry that lens through everything that we do to reach the broadest possible audience and to based on comments and like approaching 2 million subscribers in the next few weeks. The vast majority of them are people who just like listen to this like a podcast, like when they're making dinner or something or they turn it on for their kids, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's, this... they're, they're not uh, paleontologists or even students. 
this is the same for for myself. I can't recall at this point what I was watching that then YouTube queued up eons into into you know the suggested list. But I was like, oh, this is great. This is very interesting. And I think the fact that there, are, yeah, there are just so many little factoids that I obviously didn't know previously, but I would never have sat down and sought out unless someone had presented them in this really sort of easy to digest and really interesting format. You did some time with National Geographic. How did that compare to your work at Eons? Was it just print media? That was fascinating. That was really the job that made me realize that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a science communicator before there were, that term even existed. It was like the early, mid-2000s, and I had just pivoted from print journalism, from the alternative weeklies I was telling you about. And I was the first journalist that National Geographic News hired. I don't think it's called that exactly anymore. It used to be news.nationalgeographic.com. And I actually was telling my kids uh, some of the stories about the, the wacky stuff that I used to cover, and they didn't believe me. And so I wanted to pull up the articles, and the URL has changed, and so the articles don't exist anymore. But I'll, oh, I'll, I'll talk about some of the wacky stuff later. It was run by a couple of web developers, and it was an, you know, uh, an organization that was established in, in 1888. <laughs> and they were trying to figure out the internet. And they hired me to help build a newsroom. And so it really was news-focused. And so the reason, which I loved, and what I love about journalism, what I love about science journalism is like you show up every day and it's a new assignment and a new story and you learn new things. I don't know anything about any particular field of science more than any others. My background, I'm an English major. So my degree really was in critical thinking and, and storytelling rather than science. And what I love about science journalism is like you show up, you get an assignment or you you pitch something, you pitch a story, and then you interview scientists and do research. And then you translate that to like the lay public, you know, the, the non-academic public. And then you file a story and you go home. And then next day it's a new thing. I love how it's constantly uh, turning over and every day is a new assignment and learning new things. You'd mentioned, of course, that you did uh, cover some pretty interesting things when you were at Nat Geo. What would be uh, one of the most interesting that sticks out in your memory? It's really interesting and timely that you should ask this because only recently, so I have two kids, they're 11 and 14, and they have started, they've reached the age where they are realizing that I had a life before they existed. <laughs> and so we were on a road trip. I forget where we were going. We might've been going to uh, Helena for Montana Pride, actually. And they're like, so tell me, tell us about your life before we were born. What did you do? And I was talking to them about my journalism career and I worked for National Geographic, which I had heard of. So not the magazine, but the website. And like, so what did you do? And my favorite story and the ones that they enjoyed the most, and this also goes back to storytelling, is the newsroom got a grant from the Suwannee River Tourism Board. And I didn't even know what the Suwannee River was. I just heard the song. And it's in northwest uh, Florida on the Gulf Coast. And I was tasked with finding three interesting things to write about regarding the science and the biology of the Suwannee River and what would tourists go do. So one was manatee conservation. There are a lot of manatees there. And I went swimming with manatees for the first time and got to meet a cow and her calf. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I never got to swim with manatees. That's... Yeah. It was uh, the Crystal River. A biologist took me out, and he's like, "Just you just need a wetsuit and a snorkel. Like, it was, you know, very shallow. Took me out in the field, and they were testing them for papillomavirus, which was a problem in the population that they were studying there. But the main thing was, I discovered, and I forget how I learned about this. I think I was just going through some peer-reviewed research at the time. I discovered there is an unpopulated island off the Gulf Coast of Florida called, I think, Seahorse Key. I'm almost sure. And there's a lighthouse on it that's unstaffed and no people. And a herpetologist had made that uninhabited island the focus of his studies because it contains the highest density in the world of cottonmouth snakes. Oh. And it was something like, I want to say, four snakes per square yard or square foot. 
Well, I can see why it's not inhabited. I imagine was, maybe this yeah. has something to do with it. <laughs> it was really remarkable. And he, so the two things that live on this island are cottonmouth snakes, and it's a seasonal rookery for large seabirds, like secretary birds. And he was perplexed by this abundance of venomous snakes that seemed to have no effect on the bird population. And so his he went in thinking the snakes would eat the eggs because it's easier to eat eggs than living birds. And so maybe that's why there are so many snakes there. But it didn't explain why the numbers of birds did not decline and also why the birds kept returning every season. So he captured some of the snakes and tested some of their tissues. And I think he just tested most of their excrement, really, uh, did an isotope analysis and found out that they were living off of not the birds, but the fish that the birds brought back to feed their young. So they would either catch fish or they would eat it and then like regurgitate it into their offspring's mouths, as you do. <laughs> yeah, and as, um, as is natural, as one does. And, you know, some of it gets lost in transmission. So he determined that the snakes have a much easier and better living by eating pieces of fish and regurgitated fish than bothering with the birds at all. So if anything, the birds, they had a symbiotic relationship where the birds were bringing them fish. The snakes would eat the fish and leave the birds alone. And in return, basically the snakes, I'm sure, are deterring other possible predators that would possibly mm -hmm. uh, be preying on the, the birds themselves. Yeah. And so their eggs were protected functionally because there were these venomous snakes around that weren't bothering them. And they would, I think there were some uh, small mammals on the island. They were a small part of the diet, uh, but they mainly lived off of the fish. So one of the, one of the things that that taught me was in science, but especially in storytelling, one of the most powerful drivers of a strong narrative is counterintuition, where it's something that seems impossible or unlikely turns out to be true, or the thing that you don't expect turns out to be the case. Uh, so in this case, it's snakes and birds, and you think that the snakes exist there because they're feeding off the birds, but actually they make a better living by leaving the birds alone and eating the food that they bring. And so this kind of follows, um, so, you know, we have like what, sort of the standard narrative structure in like the Western world. And of course, you've got your <clears throat> rising conflict and then there's the resolution at the end. And there's also an East Asian narrative structure and it's a four phase narrative structure. But one of them is the twist or the reversal. And this is like a key part of the East Asian narrative structure. So that I have no idea. That. That's very interesting. Oh, yeah. It's fascinating. <clears throat> it began in China. And then it was like culturally exported into Korea and Japan as well. And actually the writers of the Super Mario Brother video game franchise have like explicitly stated that this Eastern narrative structure is what they follow for the format for their writing for those games. Is there a name for that? I think it's like uh, Kisho Tenketsu. So it's K-I-S-H-O-T-E-N-K-E-T-S-U. And that's the Japanese name for it. Oh, interesting. Okay, thanks so much. I'm yeah, going to uh, have a look at this. Yeah, it's really cool. And the fact that it's got this migratory history as like, you know, starting in China and then going into also like Korean and Japanese culture is really interesting. <clears throat> and I think it's something where this is an international program. I think it's it's cool when you can find some of these non-Western things and, and be able to sort of bring those to light a bit more because usually we tend to focus very much just a Western narrative. 
the other thing that uh, fascinated my kids about the seahorse key story was the reporting itself where I met this herpetologist he's based in Gainesville hired a boat and took me out there and he gave me the you have to wear chaps basically like these leather things that go around your calves so when snakes strike at you they hopefully don't break through the leather and through your pants into your skin and then we also had the uh, there's a name for them but like the grabby sticks oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know for like moving things around and we made a point of doing it in November when they were kind of it was cool and they were kind of in a torpor but they were around uh, and so we very gingerly walked among the fallen palm fronds looking for cotton mouths and we found them in abundance it was amazing they're also quite small I was struck by how small they were they're pretty venomous aren't they mm-hmm. yeah okay so, so you're like fingers crossed that those chaps uh, are, are well made then yeah <laughs> that's awesome because you can also, in addition to building in the facts, the mm. fact that you can sort of convey this experience, once again, you know, it makes it more meaningful than just simply listing bullet points of facts. And I had a lot of respect for the researcher himself. He spent years on that island, off and on, you know, and knew exactly where to go and where to not go and how to protect himself. And it's fascinating. In multimedia learning, there's something called the personalization principle. And this basically states that a conversational tone will lead to higher retention than something robotic. How do you sort of balance this? Um, I know you mentioned earlier that when you started Eons, you guys had discussions about really making it accessible and bringing it to the viewers. But how do you how do you balance making sure that you're presenting the proper information as best as possible, but also not sort of speaking at such a high, uh, I guess, register that it turns off people that are maybe novices? In the personalization principle. I had to look it up once you uh, uh, sent me these questions, and I had never heard of it before, but it sounds pretty much exactly like what we talk about at work. <laughs> Uh, and it just sort of like intuitively, you know, we knew going in that uh, we wanted to reach people who didn't have a lot of foundational knowledge, but also didn't think of themselves necessarily as science consumers. Because we understand that a lot of our stuff, especially on YouTube, is going to be served or recommended or suggested to people who are on there for something else. And like the algorithm just happens to know that they might have an idle curiosity in this thing, but they aren't like hardcore paleo nerds. The point being that we knew that our content was going to reach people who didn't really, again, identify themselves as like consumers of this stuff. Typically, they're not going out looking for it, but they're going to be exposed to it. And so we wanted to make sure that the information was as accessible as possible. And also that we really reach people in the first, say, 45 seconds by painting a picture or establishing a scene to draw them in. I feel like I'm not answering your question, though. Your question is about balance between like rigor and narrative. Like, do you ever, are there other, are there ever times where you've sort of said, okay, we need to dumb this down? Dumbing down is anathema to us. It's something that we are proud of ourselves to not do. But instead, what we we kind of turn that idea on its head. Instead of like simplifying ideas, we allow complex ideas to be complex. But that involves limiting other information. For example, I used to be a tour guide. I used to live in uh, New Mexico. I spent most of my adult life there before I moved to Montana. And uh, I lived in Billy the Kid Country, and I worked for this museum, and I would give tours. And I would, in 30 minutes, I would tell people everything that I knew about this place. And my boss came up to me afterward and said, like, you know a lot, and you're good, but people are going to remember three things that you tell them in 30 minutes. So just focus on those three things and, like, unpack them. (laughs) Okay. And I've taken that advice into my current work, where, you know, we have 10 minutes to talk to people about a specific organism or a geologic event or an episode of history, natural history. And 
And if something becomes really complex, we have to pause and unpack it as much as we can, which can involve putting aside other things. So by, by, by which I mean, like, again, there are really only two or three scientific principles that you could put into a 10 minute episode and really do them justice so that people will understand them and then also retain them. And a good example is like when we very first started talking about using genetic analysis to talk about our understanding of the evolution of organisms. So it's not based on fossils, it's based on their genomes and comparing genomes of other organisms and what they do and don't have in common. There's this mechanism that researchers use called the molecular clock. And it's basically using well-dated fossils with changes in genomes to compare timelines. There's like a genetic timeline of what we see in the genome, and then there's what we see in the fossil record. And then you can extrapolate from that approximately when, say, two different organisms shared a common ancestor, if that makes sense. Yes. So some of it's based on like actual physical concrete evidence, but a lot of it is based on genetic data. And the first time we mentioned that, it just came up in the script and I was like, wait, what is this? And then the writer explained it to me like, well, we have to explain, people aren't going to know what a molecular clock is. So we're going to have to take 30 seconds of this episode to just say it the way I did. And a lot of it could be handled with graphics, thankfully, because it's this sort of, it could be interpreted more intuitively in a visual way than in a verbal way, which is one of the many assets we have going in our favor. Well, interestingly enough, also, there is, and it's similarly linked with this personalization principle. One of the other principles of multimedia learning is that having images, of course, does help, but it's actually better to have images with a spoken narration as opposed to just handing someone like a piece of paper with images and text. Interesting. And, and so I would guess in, in a way needing to limit just, as you said, something like th basically three concepts per episode and, and really do them justice to ensure that you have uh, more retention it kind of also benefits you because you're not really going to run out of material because if you can only fit <laughs> right. episode, yeah, I mean, it's like, it, and you guys have, how many episodes have you all done so far? You've got a pretty expansive list. Oh gosh, gosh, I'm not sure. Over a hundred, oh, probably. I was going to say over a hundred for sure. Yeah, probably less than 200. Okay. Because we're going into season four, like technically we're working seasons, but yeah, I would say between 100 and 150. So, I mean, an example of uh, what you're asking about, like regarding the level of information, it kind of brings to mind a script that I was working with our content manager on. She scared, shared a script with me uh, about Toxodon from South America. And its claim to fame is that Darwin found it before he got to Galapagos when he was on the voyage of the Beagle. He was in what's now Uruguay and came across this fossil at like a rock shop, basically, <laughs> the 19th century version of South American rock shop and found the skull of this weird thing. And he described it as the strangest animal he'd ever seen, which is something coming from Darwin. And the script originally was like, the writer said everything she knew about Toxodon. And that, that was kind of it. And for somehow, despite the fact that there was a lot of intrigue surrounding Darwin and then later Richard Owen's inability to figure out what this thing was, the script is not that interesting because it was just like a laundry list of facts. And it kind of was like, you know, a chronological telling of the, the first specimen that was found and other ones that were found and what we thought it was and then the end. Then we you figured out what it was in the end. And so I just went back to them, to the content manager and the writer and said, all I need to know is three things. What did Toxodon, what did Toxodon turn out to be? How did we learn that? And then why is that interesting? Like, what is the point of this script other than saying that Toxodon existed? What we realized was actually that there was a great story in there and had to do with the fact that it, it was like a, an example of isolation or evolution that takes place in isolation because Toxodon dated back to a time when South America was an island, an island continent. And it ended up having some of the features that kind of resembled, like Darwin thought it was an aquatic mammal, like maybe related to some kind of Cyrenians, like a manatee or a dugong. Richard Owen thought it was a rodent because of its teeth. And it turned out to be neither of those things. It was 
an ungulate, and it just had other weird features that resembled other mammals because it evolved in isolation and didn't get any new data from any other populations or either any other species. And so there are a lot of weird mammals in South America from that time because they just evolved in isolation. And like that was the interesting thing. So it was an example of this particular phenomenon, you know. But like those were just like the three scientific principles, not even the scientific principles, the three things that we had to tell people. And it takes 10 minutes to really do each of those things justice. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, this is also something that I kind of enjoy with eons is that, yeah, you have some episodes that focus more on the characteristics and the, the the species itself and like, you know, what happened to it or like talking about maybe, you know, a certain extinction event. But then there are uh, episodes where you kind of focus on like the meta narrative of the scientific discovery process. And so there's like some scientific history in addition to the actual paleontology itself, which I think is really cool. And now, would you say that there are some limitations to narrative deployment with some topics? Like, are there just some topics that really it's hard to find a way to link together the facts in a meaningful narrative structure? (laughs) There are things that we have tabled only because we can't find a way to tell that story yet, but we want to tell them. I'm trying to think of an example, but I would need our Trello board in front of us to to look at them. But one I remember that I went, gosh, six months going back and forth with a writer back when I was editing the scripts myself, just had to do with, can we explain to people what we know about climate cycles? Like all the things that inform changes in climate in Earth's history. So Milankovitch cycles, precession, polar, or the axial precession, things like that. And like, what do we do other than doing like an explainer video about here's how climate changes? And the writer, who's a paleontologist and a professor, came up with a kind of hero character to tell that story. And it was the woolly rhino in Asia. And tracing the movement of populations of woolly rhinos around Eurasia over... I think it was hundreds of thousands of years. I don't think they're around that long. And seeing how that correlates and corresponds with what we know now, retro, like working backward about climate cycles and Milankovitch cycles. And so when the climate got warmer, they would move north. When the climate got cooler, they were more widespread. And just sort of setting the scene with talking about woolly rhinos, which is kind of dope, neat, charismatic fauna. And then talking about all the adaptations, all the changes that they had to make, actually, just in terms of like their range, and to some extent their diet, to accommodate changes in climate. So we would start to unpack the kind of astrophysics of climate cycles. Then every now and then we would check in on the woolly rhinos to see what they were doing during that phase. You know what I mean? It took us at least six months to figure out how to how to peel that onion, but we <laughs> we did it. And the episode turned out to be, it was long, it was like 13 or 14 minutes, but it was worth it. And now I noticed you all also utilize, you mentioned this a little bit earlier about getting the attention at the beginning. I kind of think of it as like the Quentin Tarantino uh, (laughs) strategy with nonlinear storytelling. I remember there's one that was discussing, for example, a land land dwelling creature that was fossilized, sank to the bottom of the ocean and was fossilized there. And then it's like, okay, and now let's work our way back. (laughs) You're probably wondering how I got here, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. So is is nonlinear storytelling something that you guys intentionally think about when you're doing your episode creation? That is so interesting. I take no credit for this. So the content manager for Eons, this is the person who's in charge of fielding pitches, developing pitches, working on outlines and editing scripts. Like all of the words that come out of that channel are the work of Dr. Darcy Shapiro, who is a physical anthropologist and is an incredibly gifted storyteller. And she actually has... (laughs) 
part of it is like movie references, just like you were talking about. And when she and I talk about an episode of like, is this a Tarantino thing or like a Billy Wilder thing where you start with the corpse in the swimming pool and you figure out how they got there? Or is it more of like a Maltese Falcon thing where like there's a surprise at the end? So you definitely would say that there's some heavy inspiration that does come from the movie cinematic Oh, yes, absolutely. And she also has graphics that show the narrative arc. Like, what shape and size arc is this? Is it Does it take off and land? Or does it, like with the uh, Tarantino thing, are you starting at one point and you have to go back in time and then go back there again and then go past it? Or does it stop when you get there again? And she, <laughs> so she thinks about this, like, visually and narratively and in terms of popular culture discourse, I guess, is the key takeaway. One thing that we want to do is to make sure that our content is compelling while not becoming cookie cutter. So we don't use the same thing over and over again. You mentioned the, the kind of a depiction of scientific pursuit, which is basically like a detective story. Again, I take no credit for this, but a writer pitched us on Devil's Corkscrews, which are these weird spiral formations in the Midwest, in Nebraska. They're underground and they're, they look like corkscrews going into the earth made of sediment. And she crafted a great script about when they were first found by like white American scientists and all of the questions, all of the hypotheses that they tested. And then new evidence would come to light. They would find fossils every now and then in the bottom of some of them. And it turns out that these burrows were the work of beavers. They were terrestrial beavers before beavers were aquatic. And they would dig burrows in the ground that were corkscrews, and they did that to regulate airflow and temperature. So they would basically hide from the heat in these corkscrew-shaped burrows. I think I actually definitely remember this episode because I was really, like, that was not the conclusion I expected. Right, me neither. As surprised as anyone. Yeah. And the whole episode was just like this weird thing and how we figured out what it was. And just showing, again, like scientific pursuit, the endeavor of formulating hypotheses and then testing the hypotheses and then finding new data and then changing the hypothesis, testing it again. You know what I mean? Rinsing and repeating. And like, that's what the work looks like. And it takes decades. I think that is fantastic. And, um, you know, we've mentioned it before, but for any listeners, once again, uh, you can find Blake on social media at Western Digs on TikTok, Instagram, anything else? Any other platforms? Uh, Twitter. Twitter. Where else? I think you and I met on Instagram, right? Where else Correct. are we? I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, Instagram and TikTok are, are my, my main two right now. Well, uh, I just have to say, once again, thank you so much. Uh, fantastic discussing not only the use of narratives in scientific education, but in education about broader societal topics. Blake, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And there you have it. That concludes our illuminating interview with Blake DePastino talking about the power of narratives in learning. I sincerely hope all of you found today's topic as fascinating as I did. If so, you can further experience the way that Blake and his colleagues harness the power of educational storytelling by checking out Eons on YouTube or following Blake on social media at Western Digs. Once again, my name is Eric, and I thank all of you for joining us today here on Edutech XP. I hope you'll join us again in the future. Stay curious.